1: Hi, I'm Huang Lei. On today's Alight on Literature, we continue by presenting the book Tides from the West, a Chinese autobiography written by Chang Meng-Ling. Chang Meng-Ling was a well-respected Chinese educator. Today, Tang narrates the third part of Chapter 33. Enjoy!
0: Chinese thought is centered upon the development of human relations. We are interested in natural laws only so far as they are capable of serving as guides for human conduct. The Great Learning, one of the Confucian classics, taught us a system of knowledge to which I have alluded in an earlier chapter. It starts with the search for truths in things from which we gain our knowledge. Knowledge is the power by which the mind is developed. So far, the story is intellectual. But as it goes on, the shading of moral sense begins to grow. Mental development is for personal culture, which in turn will serve as the foundation for a well-ordered family life. The latter is the foundation of a well-governed state, which in turn will serve as a step toward international peace, From the rudiments of knowledge down to international peace, this forms a complete scheme of practical moral idealism. To the Chinese, world peace is not something to be dreamed about, but a practical moral scheme. For national prosperity is invariably bound up with peace between nations. A type of knowledge which does not lead to this end is but secondary or trifling. For such an attitude toward learning, to ascertain whether the earth goes round the sun or the sun round the earth is but trivial. Or again, what is the use of bothering with the expansion of water in the boiling kettle, as Watt did, if we are to believe the story? The Chinese would be more interested in the hissing sound, which suggests making tea in preparation for guests. It is poetic. The drop of an apple to the ground is only natural. The Chinese would moralize it. They would say that when a thing is ripe, it drops. When you do things in a proper way, they come to their natural conclusion. There is no use in puzzling about it should the apples in your garden shoot up to the sky it would set the chinese to fearing that some great calamity might fall upon the people as with the appearance of a comet or some other perversion of the familiar order of things it would take a newton to think along the line of the attraction of the earth thus with my own effort to preach what is the use to china of those figures of great antiquity or their teachings In my people's eyes, natural science is useful only because practical uses come out of it. The Greek philosophers are remote even from modern natural sciences. What earthly use is there in them? The Chinese are in sympathy with the usefulness of science, but recoil from the idea of science for science's sake. Learning is for the sake of its use is an accepted dictum among chinese scholars with such a mental attitude it is small wonder that china has not developed pure science an elaboration of intellectual interest rather than of practical considerations we built the great wall and the grand canal and developed a system of irrigation The grandeur of our architectural design, our palaces and temples, has inspired worldwide admiration. These works are among the greatest engineering feats the world has ever known. But they were not developed from a fountain of pure science, and therefore, however remarkable they were, no further development was possible until modern engineering came to the rescue. For without pure science, the applied science of modern engineering could not attain its present high plane. The discovery of the compass and gunpowder by the Chinese has served useful purposes in the world. But it was a Western mind that observed the principle of explosive expansion in gunpowder and applied it to boiling water, thus making possible the discovery of steam power. In China, discoveries stopped at their immediate practical use. We did not, like the Greeks, try to venture into generalization. Nor, like modern Europeans, did we try to get universal laws from particular discoveries, a trait inherited from the Hellenic world in its improved form. Once the useful purposes of an invention were served, we stopped there. Therefore, Chinese science traveled unaided and without the guiding light of scientific thought. The development of science in China was arrested because we were too practical minded. I do not mean to say that the Chinese do not think logically, but their minds were not aided by systematic mental gymnastics. This defect has been reflected in Chinese philosophy, political and social organization, and daily life. It has become more glaring as the rest of the world came to live under the light of modern science in an industrialized society. Besides being practical, our people are imbued with a sound moral sense. It may also be said that because we are moral, we are practical for morals refer to conduct which is necessarily judged by practical results. There will be no such fanciful ideas or speculation about conduct as the Greeks had with physics and metaphysics. At times we may venture beyond that practical moral way of thinking, But the antennae of our minds recoil as soon as we feel we are getting away from the sphere of human relations and stop right there. A song philosopher of the 12th century once stepped over the moral bounds by speculating on the formation of mountain ranges and on the finding of seashells on the tops of mountains. He observed that the waves of the mountain ranges indicated the fluidity of the mountains many thousands of years earlier, while the shells bore witness to the fact that their peaks must once have been at the bottom of the sea. But when and how the fluid suddenly coagulated into mountains, and how the bottom of the sea was raised to such a height, he had no means of discovering. There he stopped fearing shipwreck if he should venture too far. There have been similar instances of observing nature both before and after this philosopher, but Chinese thinkers were always scrupulous in their mental excursions not to drift too far away from the camp of human relations. That the Chinese are not a non-intellectual people needs no proof as it is so evident but their intellect was exercised within the sphere of morals and practical uses. Thus they set limits to their own intellectual activities. Like silkworms, they wove their moral cocoons with threads drawn from their own minds, as it were, to encase themselves, and they loved their encasement and felt comfortable in it. Chinese life is a life of contentedness, Stability is aimed at in Chinese philosophy. Progress? No, it will create discontent, which will destroy stability. The Chinese is contented with his immediate world and has never wanted to speculate far and deep in nature. China has not produced natural science because she did not want it. The Greeks were quite a different sort of people. Aristotle's mind ventured high up into the heavens, low down beneath the earth, and far away beyond the corners of the land. The universe was material for the exercise of Greek intellect. To the Greeks, the mere use of the intellect was a pleasure. They did not care much about whether it was practical or had anything to do with morals or human relations. What do I get by learning these things? asked a pupil of Euclid. Give him sixpence, since he must make gain out of what he learns, said Euclid to his servant as the story runs. Even with morals, they developed a system of ethics, looking into the validity of moral laws through intellectual inquiry, and this was how Socrates got into trouble, being accused of poisoning the souls of young people with dangerous questionings. Out of Greek ideas about nature and love of intellectual exercise in systematic thinking, flowing intermittently through the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the French Revolution, and receiving great impetus from the Industrial Revolution, through which it gradually improved its instruments and technique, natural science has grown to its modern stage. The practical considerations of science were never neglected in its later development in Europe. Frequent inventions and discoveries gave further impetus to scientific research. Scientific generalizations and applied science marched shoulder to shoulder, so the influences of pure and applied science react one upon another to their mutual benefit. When modern science began to trickle into China after the opening of the commercial ports, it was its practical value that attracted the attention of the Chinese scholars. They built arsenals and dockyards. Incidentally, they translated books on elementary science. They were not interested in whether the sun goes round the earth or vice versa. It was immaterial to them since the alternatives had no practical consequence in their relation to man. More than a century earlier, when the Jesuits brought mathematics and astronomy to the court of the Ming emperors, scholars were interested because these sciences would mend the deficiencies then found to exist in the Chinese calendar. For the calendar is indispensable not only for reckoning days, months and years, but also for sowing and harvesting around the beginning of the 20th century the theory of evolution was brought into china chinese scholars at once saw the practical moral significance of it with the application of a natural law of struggle for existence natural selection and survival of the fittest they came to the conclusion that nations in the world were struggling for existence and through natural selection only the fittest would survive Would China be the fittest, and would she survive? She must struggle, struggle for existence. As to the validity of the theory, they had no particular interest and no scientific background to start an investigation anyhow. Right away, they threw a moral cushion over the intellectual undertaking of Darwin. At once, they moralized it by saying, the flesh of the weak is the food of the strong. Being a weak nation, China had to worry about her flesh. Countrymen, arise. It is your duty to your country to look out for the cannibal nations around us. Another phase of the theory of evolution was taken up in its application to history. History goes round in a circle, the Chinese scholars believed, Under the influence of Darwinism, they recast their old belief into a new faith that history forges ahead or else recedes or remains stationary. This change in the conception of history exercised a paramount influence upon the minds of Chinese scholars in regard to progress. The conceptions of yin and yang and the five elements undoubtedly grew out of naive observations of nature. They were good enough for rationalizing the conduct of nature and man. No minute calculations were necessary, much less the use of the hands. I presume that if Chinese scholars were interested in manual work, they would apply it to making useful or beautiful objects of art, rather than to experiments in the scientific laboratory. People would still think and do only along the lines where their interests lay the magnetic needle will only point in the direction of the magnetic pole. Such an attitude of mind is, of course, no fertile soil for pure science. However, slowly but steadily, China is modifying her attitude. From applied science, she has been led to pure science, from pure science to new ways of thinking, and finally to actual modification of her attitude of mind we have opened windows in the walls of our moral universe and looked into the gardens of a new intellectual universe, where the fruits of science and invention abound. This modification of mental attitude has set a new value upon nature, nature as the pure scientist sees it, and not only as the moralist or poet sees it. The universe to the modern Chinese is not only a moral one, as the ancient Chinese saw it, but also an intellectual one, as the Greeks saw it. The moralist studies nature with a view to finding its laws for the benefits of human relations. The scientist studies it with a view to finding its natural laws for intellectual interest, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, China's absorption of modern science has penetrated through these moral bounds of her universe, and the minds of the modern Chinese are reaching further and further out to search for truths. Their thinking has been becoming more adventurous, like a ship sailing in unknown seas, exploring for hidden treasures. In other aspects, this intellectual release has caused the minds of the younger generation to adopt a critical attitude toward traditional ideas, make critical inquiries into morals, government, and social customs with far-reaching consequences. While men of the older generation have been very much alarmed at the possible destruction of their tranquil moral abodes and have lamented the passing of the good old days, the younger generation has busied itself in building a new intellectual edifice. All that, I think, is one of the most valuable contributions that the West has made to China. Inversely, as the Greeks found with the Babylonian and Egyptian sciences, a study of Chinese sciences may yield profitable contributions to the modern scientific world. A modest beginning made in recent years in the scientific study of Chinese architecture, medicine, and economic botany has yielded fruitful results. Civilizations are built around different systems of the universe as men conceive it. The Chinese conceived a moral universe, around which they built their civilization. The Greeks conceived an intellectual universe around which they built theirs. European morals as they are today have been drawn from Christianity, a moral universe as revealed through God. On the other hand, the Chinese moral universe is as revealed through nature's ways. The Christians have endeavored to build a kingdom of heaven on earth, while the Chinese were content with trying to build a kingdom of peace and stability. Chinese morals are derived from nature, Christian morals from divine power. For the Chinese, the gods are but part of nature, while to Christians, nature is but the creation of God. On these grounds, it is plain that the conflicts between Christian dogma and science were bound to be very serious, as Western history has proven in abundance while the conflicts between science and Chinese moral precepts would be mild since both started from the same ground, nature, only traveling in different directions. It has been said that Christian thought is heavenly or godly, Chinese thought is worldly, and Greek thought unworldly. It is this unworldly thought that has led men to the discovery of the natural laws which are the foundation of modern science and hence of modern invention. The unworldly thought in the applications of science has brought prosperity to the world, if not peace and stability. The development of European civilization as I see it is a struggle at various times between the Christian moral universe and the Greek intellectual universe, The Renaissance, the Reformation, and the French Revolution were but the bursting out of a submerged intellectual universe under the domination of a moral one. These various movements were only different phases of the same current. Finally came the Industrial Revolution in which the same intellectual universe, continuously developing through centuries, came to the surface in an overwhelming torrent and swept aside everything in its way. Its spearhead had already taken China unawares before and during the time of my childhood. It pierced our moral universe, burst out later to destroy the stability of Chinese life, and thus furnished the materials for the writing of this volume. One universe cannot be expected to produce the fruits of another. The fruits of the tree of science ripen in intellectual gardens alone. Within the system of Christian dogma or that of Chinese moral precepts, no science could have been produced. Though indeed we find much scientific thought in Michias in ancient times, this is a non-essential part of his philosophical system. Such thoughts are but satellites to a planet. His system is fundamentally moral. For science grows out of man's whole being a burning desire for unworldly truths, a fearless, ever-searching intellect with unbiased spirit continuously reaching out for truth and an indomitable vigor of mind and body. In other words, it grows out of the very soul of man in his intellectual world. No mere side interests or occasional excursions of the mind into nature or lukewarm desire to understand it could ever crown man with the glorious garland of science. In China, under the influence of modern science, there is growing up a new moral edifice stripped of superstition and false analogies to nature, tested through intellectual inquiry and supported by findings of social science based upon methods adapted from physical research to the investigation of society. On the other hand, we must not forget that the old Chinese moral edifice built up through centuries of vicarious experience and generations of continuous effort by such various means as the Confucian classics, literature in general, the graphic arts, music, the family, theater, gods, temples, even toys, this moral structure has made Chinese people trustworthy, their society stable, and their civilization enduring. Such moral precepts as loyalty, honesty, love of parents, truthfulness, benevolence, righteousness, moderation, and broad-mindedness have contributed much toward the moral-emotional makeup of the Chinese people. Intellectual honesty that grows out of modern science will reinforce these virtues that have grown out of ages of moral teaching. Side by side with the new moral universe, A new intellectual edifice will be raised to house the achievements of the creative genius of young China. On the stem of the Confucian system of knowledge, which starts with the investigation of things or nature, and leads to human relationships, we shall graft the Western system of scientific knowledge, which starts with the same investigation of things or nature, but leads the other way round to their interrelationships. As in the West, the moral universe will coexist in China with the intellectual, one for stability and the other for progress. Can we strike the happy mean?
1: And that was the third part of chapter 33 of the book Tides from the West A Chinese autobiography written by Chang Meng Lin, Read by Tang Daming, And published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press Join us again next time on A Light on Literature For the final part of chapter 33 See you next time Welcome to A Light on Literature, a representation of timeless works from Chinese literature. Today's narration by Tang Daming is Tides from the West, a Chinese autobiography written by Chang Meng-Ling. Chang Meng-Ling was a well-respected Chinese educator. He served as the Education Minister of the Republic of China in the late 1920s, before being appointed president of Peking University in the 1930s. This autobiography reads like a movie script that takes you back to experience what China was like a century
0: ago. Enjoy!